In his ministry, Fox much labored to open truth to the people's understandings and to ground them upon the principle of Christ Jesus, the light of the world, that by bringing them to something that was of God in themselves, they might better know and judge of him and themselves. William Penn, in his introduction to George Fox's journal. This is the Ohio Yearly Meeting Conservative reading presentation and study of the True Christian's Faith and Experience Briefly Declared, written by an early Quaker, William Schuen, originally in 1875. This is session number three. I think also because when we were looking at the text online, Chad has a question or a comment. I'm just wondering about the 1875 date. If this is a contemporary of Fox, shouldn't it be in the 1600s? I'm sorry, I meant 1675. That's not what I said. Yeah, 1675. As I had mentioned in the first session, this was a really difficult time of persecution for Quakers. I'd gone over some of that history, the little that we know about William Schuen. He did not write much. He was a pin maker, and we do know he was in prison at some point for his Quaker faith. We finished the first of the three prefaces, and we are beginning the second preface. I'm going to show the text now. On the first preface, as I just would like to remind you, in part of that first preface, Schuen talked about himself as being one of these Christians in name only before he finally saw the light of Christ, experienced the light of Christ, and, and went on the road to become a true Christian. In this second preface, he gives about 20 or so citations from the Bible, almost all from the New Testament. I'm going to just kind of skip over some of them because he will be talking about them in more detail in the 20 sections that the work consists of. But there may be a few here that I would like to point out because I think they are important to start off with. I'll begin the reading here. I'm translating this into modern English as best I can as we go along. There may be times I'm not certain, but I thought that would save time for those who are not familiar with 17th century English. That is the English of the King James Version of the Bible. We will begin here. Reader. The scripture is following, having a good esteem in my mind, as sayings worthy to be noted greatly and weightily concerned, I have committed them to the press, wishing you may enjoy the goal for them, the goal they have. And this I will assure you, if you can understand, believe, and accept these divine and heavenly sayings, precepts, exhortations, promises, and testimonies. In these and others mentioned in this brief declaration, this work of a true Christian's faith, etc., you will not stumble at or reject his testimony, etc., but rather embrace and have unity with them. But if you do not understand or believe the one, neither will you the other, for the true Christian bears testimony to the Holy Scriptures and the Scriptures to him. And the titular or nominal Christian's testimony is against them, and they are against him because he does not obey them or live the life they call for. As I mentioned in the last couple of sessions, throughout the work, he makes a distinction in each section, first explaining what the true Christian believes in and how he lives his life, 
And then in the second half, he will explain what he sees as the Christian in name only and how he lives his life and how he believes. I want to just say something at the moment. This is something we will go into in much more detail as we read the full text. And that is the difference between inward and outward. Those two very important words really explain looking at all of reality, spiritual and physical, as being broken into an inner side, an interior side, or on the other hand, an exterior, an outward side, a physical side, a material side, a worldly side, carnal. There are many other words that are used for both these words, inward and outward. Inward meaning in within, inside, outward meaning the outside, the surface, superficial. I'm just mentioning here because in reading these scriptures, one should keep that in mind at times as to how friends have historically, traditionally understood some of these passages. Remember thy creator. Remember your creator in the days of your youth, while the days of evil do not come nor the years draw near when you shall say, I have no pleasure in them, while the sun or the light or the moon or the stars are not darkened or the clouds return after the rain. Dearly beloved, believe not every spirit, do not believe every spirit, but rather test the spirits, whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. 1 John 4, verse 1, etc. It's important to understand that the word prophet basically means someone who speaks for another, specifically someone who speaks for God. In today's language, we probably would translate this word prophet or false prophet as false ministers, false Christian ministers, those who are not teaching the true Christian faith. In early Christian writings, we find two major groups of people, the prophets and the teachers. And the prophets in such writings often refer to ministers because those who ministered were understood to be speaking for God. False prophet does not. Little children, you are from God, you are of God, and have overcome them, those false spirits. For greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. This is a reference here to something that is very basic to traditional Quaker belief, and that is Christ in us, that the seed of Christ, the seed of God, the Spirit of God is in us, perhaps only initially as a seed. You recall the parable of Jesus, where you have the sower of the seed, and he's sowing seed into different kinds of ground, different kinds of people. It's important to become the kind of ground that yields a crop, that is a good ground. So that is the reference. The one that is in you is that spirit of God, that spirit of Christ, the Messiah within you. And he is greater than he that is in the world. That's another reference referring to Satan, to the father of evil spirits, to the serpent, the various names that we use to refer to that entity. He is in the world. He's referred to, and Paul, I believe, as the ruler of the world. Henry, can you talk about this preposition of that is appearing here? Yes, let me say something about that preposition. Everyone speaks English in this session as their native language understands what of means today. But in the 17th century, it had a couple of other meanings as well as the modern meaning. 
of was also the word that would be used for the modern word from. Of God would mean from God. And that occurs in quite a few places. That's the normal way of saying, the usual way of saying from, when something is from somewhere, or we would say of God in the 17th century. Also, of could be a translation of the word by, by. When something is done by someone, that's the way you'd say it. The book was given of John, meaning the book was given by John. When you look at this word of in 17th century English, it has those three usual meanings of modern of, but also those two other meanings. When it comes up again, I'll just point it out again. On the other hand, the word from, the modern word from, when it was used in the 17th century, most often it meant away from. If you said this action was from God, that means this action was away from God, not of God. So it had a very different meaning most often. And as I mentioned, the word by, B-Y, quite often had the meaning of through, T-H-R-O-U-G-H. This was done through some agency. It was done by. I'm going into a little bit more detail here because these words occur so often and they can cause some misunderstanding if you're not familiar with 17th century English. Whosoever dance transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine and the teaching of Christ does not have God. He that continues in the teaching of Christ has both the Father and the Son, Second John chapter 9. If there come any to you and bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or bid him Godspeed. Again, we're talking here about the false prophets, those false ministers, even within the very earliest Christian times, first century. There were problems where there were ministers who were not ministering. There were false ministers, false prophets. Henry, would the early friends have taken this passage literally, as in receiving someone into their physical house, or would they have understood it to be spiritually, not to receive them not to receive their bad doctrines into their spiritual selves. I'm trying to think of any passage of not receiving some non-Quaker into their house. I thought that would be the answer, but it's just that someone might read this and think. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I can't think of anywhere. Okay, this is an important passage. To be carnally minded, to be physically, outwardly, materialistically minded is death. But on the contrary, to be spiritually minded is life, eternal life and peace, a peace that surpasses all understanding. Because the carnal mind, that worldly mind, is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. So then, they that are in the flesh, who are in that worldly mindset, that physical mindset, that material outward mindset, cannot please God. And then he speaks here to the Romans. But you, on the other hand, are not in the flesh. You are not in that mindset, but rather you are in the spirit, a spiritually focused mindset. If so, if it is so that the spirit of God is dwelling in you. Now, if any man does not have the spirit of God, he is not one of his, does not belong to God. And if Christ, if the Messiah is in you, 
because of sin, the physical body is dead. But the spirit is life because of righteousness, because of upright conduct. The spirit is life, eternal life. But if the spirit of him, God, who raised up Jesus from the dead, dwells in you, is dwelling in you, he, God, who raised up Christ from the dead, shall also make your mortal bodies, your physical bodies, alive, quickened, alive, eternally alive, through his spirit that is dwelling in you. Romans 8, verses 6 through 11. This is a very important passage here because this is really at the heart of true Christianity, true Quaker understanding. What does he mean by the line, and if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin? I had difficulty myself in understanding this. If any man does not have the Spirit of God, he is not one of his, not one of God. If Christ, if the Messiah, that Spirit of the Messiah is in you, because of sin, the body is dead. Is You're not focusing on the body anymore on outward, physical, material things. That's what I understand that phrase to mean. But the Spirit is life because of righteousness, because of upright conduct, because you have the Spirit of Christ in you, the Spirit of God, this divine Spirit. You have eternal life in you. Oh, thank you. Christ be in you. Because of sin, the body is now dead to you. You're no longer focusing on outward physical cravings and desires and all the things that go along with that kind of carnal mind, that fleshly mind, that mindset. Doesn't Paul speak of how he is dead, but he lives? Yes. Where Paul says, I have been crucified by all those worldly, those material appetites, that those animal inclinations, and I no longer am alive. My ego, ego means I in Latin and Greek. My I, my ego is no longer alive, but rather Christ lives in me. But rather, on the contrary, the Christ, the Messiah, is alive in him, and he is following the directions of that spirit of the Messiah, of Christ, in doing what his will is, the will of God. I think that's what Thee was referring to, right, Nancy? Yes, and I thought that matched yes. what was being said. Yeah, Romans 8, that's a very important chapter, but it can be misunderstood, unfortunately, too. All right, let's go to the next paragraph here from Titus. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But specifically, their minds and consciences are defiled. I'm going to stop right there. This sense of defiled, because Paul says the shocking thing, that we are temples of the Holy Spirit. Again, for a Jew, this is pretty radical because God on earth basically was understood to be in the temple in Jerusalem, in the Holy of Holies. But Paul himself was saying that the seed of God, the seed of the Messiah, is in you. So, just as the temple in Jerusalem cannot be defiled or unpure, you too must not be defiled, unpure, because you are these temples. And if you expect to get in contact with that spirit of Christ, that spirit of God in you, you have to be pure, holy, undefiled. 
they, those people who profess that they know God, but through their works, they reject him and are loathsome and to every good work reprobate. Reprobate used to mean in the 17th century failure. They have failed, basically, because they are rejecting him. They are not your, they are not undefiled. This is Titus. If you abide in me, if you are dwelling in my spirit, and my words abide are in you, ask what you will, and it shall be done for you. John 15, 7. If you are true connection with the will of God, which you will be what God wants, and what God basically is saying to you. It's not like you can just ask anything, but if you are really in that same spirit, God doesn't reject himself. This is a very high and deep understanding of what it really means to be truly, fully in that spirit of Christ, that spirit of God within you. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. John 8, 32, 34. The truth, this word truth, two basic meanings in the original Greek of the New Testament. Aletheia is the Greek word. It means both truth in the modern sense of truth, but it also means total spiritual reality. We would capitalize the T if we are talking about that, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is the spirit of Christ in Jesus saying, I am the way to God the Father. I am truth. I am the ultimate reality, and I am life. I am eternal life within you as a seed. No one comes to the Father, to God the Father, except through the Spirit of Christ and this eternal life that is in you. The kingdom of God is within you. Again, perhaps only as a seed. Whosoever commits sin is the servant of sin, is the slave of sin. Servant in the 17th century had two meanings. It was the word that meant slave, and it also has the modern sense servant. So often in the 17th century, they are translating it from the Greek word that means slave. Whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. He just does what his sinful impulses tells him to do. And that is away from being connected to that spirit of truth that might help him, guide him away from those worldly impulses, becoming addicted to them. Verily, verily, truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you, if a man, if anyone keeps my saying, he shall never see death. He shall never see spiritual death. Verse 51, eternal death, the second death, as it's also called in the book of Revelation, entering into the lake of fire. Fire completely consumes something, so there's nothing left, period. Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say to you, if a man is keeping my saying, what I'm telling you, if he's obeying Christ, he shall never see death. He shall never see the second death. Comments? Questions? It seems like Shuin is talking around but never actually mentioning what I think is a key verse from John chapter 6. The flesh profits nothing. It is the spirit or the breath that gives life. And the words that I speak to you, these are breath or spirit, and these are life. He that keeps my word, he that keeps this source of life, is alive. Them's his words. Yes, that's what I understand him to be saying here. And again, as we go through the work, you, you will see this much more clearly, too. He's just listing, you know, as I said here, a couple of dozen of these passages here. 
I think he's trying to set the stage for what he's going to present in the book. Father, God the Father, Father, I wish that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, my radiance, my splendor, my eternal radiance, my light, which you have given me. For you love me before the foundation of the world, before the creation of the world, the universe, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, inwardly in them, and I in them, that I, Messiah, be in them also. John 17, 24, 26. All right, translation of a couple of words here. Disciple, the Greek word means student, pupil. Master, there's a couple of meanings, but one word for master is teacher. The student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is complete shall be like his teacher. This word perfect, I wanted to talk about, but I think maybe next week, almost never means perfect in the modern English sense. It means something that has reached its highest degree of development. So it means complete, full, fully developed. And of course, if a student is completely listening and obeying his teacher, in this case, Christ, the spirit of Christ in him, he will be like his master, like Christ. He will be Christ-like. William Penn himself said, to be a Christian is to be like Christ. That's his simple definition of a Christian. To be a Christian is to be Christ-like. But love your enemies and do good and lend, hoping for nothing again. And your reward shall be great, and you shall be the children of the highest, for he is kind to the unthankful and to the evil. Be, therefore, merciful, be compassionate, therefore, like your Father in heaven also is compassionate, is merciful. Luke 6, 35-36. Next verse is, You are my friends if you do whatever I command you, whatever I order you to. Friends were originally called themselves children of the light, but they then later adopted the title friends of Christ, also friends of the truth. You are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. Friends were trying very hard to really do what God and Christ wanted Christians to do, as expressed in the New Testament. And in that case, then you are friends of Christ. You are, if you are obedient to following, to discerning what is the will of God and doing it. But the anointing which you have received of him abideth in you. Okay, anointing. The word Christ, when we talk about Jesus Christ, is a transliteration of the Greek word Christos. Christ, Christos. And that means the anointed one having something poured onto you, rubbed onto you. Jesus was anointed, the anointed one, because he had the Spirit of God rubbed into him. That's why he's called the anointed one. And the Hebrew word is Mashiach. In Mashiach, we transliterate as Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one who is the anointed one. Those who are anointed have a, had a special function to do in life. And the Messiah had a very special function. And they were like kings and prophets who were anointed. And that's why they are called anointed. They were Christ's. But Jesus was a very special type of Christ. I'm talking about the word Christ because the word anointing here is a similar word. Instead of Christos, it's chrisma. But we're talking about the same thing. 
but the anointing, that special messiahship which you have received from him, abides in you, dwells in you. And if you are in that spirit of God, if you are truly the temple of the Holy Spirit, and you do not need any man, anyone to teach you, but rather, as the same anointing teaches you something of all things, and is truth, indeed is not a lie. And specifically, as it has taught you, you shall abide in him. You shall dwell in him, in that spirit of the anointed one. Again, we're looking inwardly here at the spirit of Christ, the anointing, that spirit of God, that word of God that the sower planted in different types of soils that fell onto different kinds of soils, some tough soils, some had briars and thorns, but it's the good kind of soil. That's the kind of soil earth that we should become. We need to become so that it can produce a good crop. Again, getting back to the parable of the sower of the seed, God the Father being the sower and the seed is the word of God, God expressing himself in these different types of soils. They will go nowhere if you're on the hard path and it can't germinate, or if the cares of the world, briars and thorns strangle you so you don't get anywhere with that. The anointed one, the anointing within you, all of these are inwardly within you, inside you, in your consciousness, in your heart, in the deepest essence of yourself. In the next sentence, he says, read the eighth chapter to the Romans, and the Lord give thee understanding. May the Lord give you understanding. That eighth chapter is very important, but it's very difficult to understand unless you really take it inwardly, spiritually. Another very important passage is we're coming up right here from Romans. This is where Paul is initially quoting the Old Testament and then goes on to saying something further about it. Romans chapter 10, verse 8. The word is nigh thee. The word of God, God trying to express himself, is near you. It's in your mouth, inside you, in your heart, in your very essence, in your consciousness. That is the subject matter of the faith which we are preaching. Paul and others are preaching. This word of God, God expressing himself, the spirit of Christ, is inside you. It may only be a seed and never get anything beyond the seed, that word of God. Jesus is called the word of God, God's expression of himself. And hereby, through this, we know that we do know him, that we do experience him, if we keep his commandments, his orders, if we are in obedience to discerning the will of God and then following that. He that says he knows him, knows God, and does not keep his commandments, his orders, as a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whosoever keeps his word, that word, that expression of God in him, in him truly the love of God is made complete, is full, is fulfilled. Through this we know that we are in him, that we are in that spirit of God. He that says he abides or dwells in that spirit ought himself also to walk, to conduct himself, to behave just as he, Christ, behaved and acted. First John chapter 36. So this passage from Romans is chapter 10, verse 8 and following are some very important words here. The seed of God is in everyone. The seed of the kingdom, 
the word of God, God's expressing himself, that word meant much more than just the English word word. It meant anything and everything a person said. So it could be a whole speech that person gives or everything he said. So that the word of God is God expressing himself, is expressing himself verbally to us or even non-verbally. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that does what is right is upright, just as he is righteous or upright. He that commits sin is of the devil, from the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was made manifest, apparent, that he might destroy the works, the actions of the devil. Whoever is born, given birth to, by God, does not commit sin. That's the second birth, being born again. The Quaker word is regeneration, the word most often used historically by Quakers, regeneration. He does not commit sin, for God's seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he is given birth to by God. In this, the children of God are made manifest, are made apparent, and, on the other hand, the children of the devil. Whoever does not do acts of righteousness upright acts is not of God, from God. Neither does he love his brother. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He that does not love his brother abides in death, dwells in death, spiritual death. First John 3 verses 2 to 10th and 14th. Henry, this is Ellis. Can you say something here about what you brought out in one of the Bible study sessions about the Jewish concept of fathering being that the father puts the spirit in i oh. think it might apply here okay we 21st century people understand how babies are born in terms of the real medical way of why things are happening and how they happen but for a jew of the first century they had a kind of different understanding of when a man and woman get together what happens is the woman gives the body creates the body but the man is giving the spirit to the body that is going to be born. So you can understand that the spirit of God was given to Jesus. We may not understand that today as something that would have been understood more clearly in the first century for a Jew. Is that, Ellis, what you wanted me to say about that? Yeah, but I was looking particularly at this portion, whosoever is born of God, that implies if, if we're taking the first century Jewish understanding, whosoever has God's spirit put in him does not sin. This is being Christ-like, really. When Jesus was crucified and died, death could not hold him because he was sinless. He never sinned. God the Father raised him up from the dead. In the same way, we all know that we have sinned in many ways, perhaps, but coming into this being born again, rather being born, given birth to by God, that same spirit is in us and will give us eternal life because we've been born again, truly born again, not just thinking we are or saying we are or making a few changes in our life. It's a pathway that must continue throughout the rest of our lives. This has to do with the Quaker understanding of perfection, having a full spiritual development. We are all maybe on different levels of that as we progress through life, if we are truly Christians and trying hard to become Christ-like. 
trying hard to discern what the will of God is and to obey what that will is that we are being given. I'm happy, Alice, that you brought this up because I think this might not have been apparent to other people here. What I'm thinking, Henry, is it shows a contradiction in the way some Protestant ideas come across. People who say, well, I accepted Christ, so I'm born again. But on the other hand, say, well, there's no way that I can become sinless in this life. Quakers believe we can become sinless. We can become holy. We can become pure. It was a basic goal. Again, the word holy, hagios is the Greek word, um, forgetting the Hebrew word at the moment, but holiness for a Jew of the first century really meant something that has been separated from the world, something from the physical, the materialistic, where all your mind is focused on doing and getting stuff in the world, material goods and stuff, lots of stuff getting lots of power and physical stuff, money, all that stuff. It's been separated from the world. Making something holy is, again, separating it from the ordinary world. So I guess what I'm saying is it sounds like nowadays we would say that the titular Christian is the one who says that he's born again and yet who continues to sin. Yes, Yes, that's basically what he is saying, too, or at least implying here at this point. Let's just read this last passage here. No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God is dwelling in us, and his love is complete, fully developed in us. Through this, we know that we are dwelling in him, in that spirit of God, And he is dwelling in us because he has given us something of his spirit. That word of can also mean something of or part of. forgot to mention that earlier. Something of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father, God the Father, has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. 1 John 4, 12, etc. To be the Savior. Now, this word Savior also has, in ancient Greek, and the early friends understood this, the sense of healer. A Savior heals. To save also meant to heal. So he is the healer of the world for those who follow him. They they are born again, and they become a different kind of creature than the creature they were before. We have a few more of these passages to read in this second preface. And also, Schuin mentions himself as to how he used to understand all these passages in a very different way than after he became a Quaker and looked at it through a very different set of spiritual eyeglasses, so to speak. Okay, questions, comment. I hope I kind of made clearer some of the English there in translating it into modern English. We hope to continue that next week and then go on to the third preface, which is a short preface that was written for those who are, as Schuin would call, nominal Christians and what he has to say to them. And then finally get to section one, where we will actually get into the meat of this whole work. I looked earlier today at the OIM website and looked up this particular version my thought was that I could print out a few pages each week for the study and make notes on them, but it said that one needs a password to print anything from it, and I don't know what that might be or even if I'm allowed. I would refer that question to Conrad. 
Conrad, do we have the third version of this work of Schuin yet on the website? Not yet. Okay. The reason we're using this 2007 version is it's easier, actually, for my eyes. But there are a number of typographical errors that occur here and there, punctuation errors, misspellings, and sometimes completely wrong words, and sometimes some missing words. There are two other versions that will be there. One is the 1830 edition, and the 1872 will be on there. I have this one. I have a copy of that, but that's not the one I use because it's smaller print. No, it's, no. That's why I wanted to print off but, the pages. But, but let me say on, on the website, the OIM website, the 1872 version actually puts most of the biblical quotations in italics, which makes it clearer in the whole work. But it does leave out the second and third prefaces. On the other hand, the 1830 version is fine. But as I said, it's just a bit easier for me to read. And since I'm the host and have all power at the moment. It's a little hard to find online copies that can be printed. A lot of the ones that you can link to, like through a library, aren't printable, unless maybe you have some sort of special library privilege. Yeah, I know. So I was asking if the password was to be shared. Is that a password that our site is asking for? Or is that a password that the library is asking for? In which case, we probably library. couldn't get it. I don't think we can get it. If I were trying to do that, I would go to early English online books because you can copy and paste and print out. Karen, early English books online are only books published before 1700. So it would be in the form of typeset that would have the long S's and that might be harder to read. Could I take screenshots of two or three pages or would that be dealing with copyright? I don't think so because all these modern reprints are not copyrighted as far as I know. I if I could screen shoot, you know, two or three yes. pages. Let me just quickly look at my, okay, mine is copyrighted. But this is the modern copy that unfortunately appears now to be out of print, but it has the largest print of all the mm -hmm. other modern reprints. This is from Forgot Books. Hopefully it'll come out again. This one, which is a bit, yeah. you can see it's not that easy to oh, read. Yeah, this is ForgottenBooks.com. The early English online books version is in regular print, is in modern print. I just put oh, it in. It? Yeah. The annoyance with that is that it's divided up into all these little divisions. If your point is to copy it and print it off, then. This edition has the three prefaces that I understand were in the original work, which I don't have. I think it goes back to the 1830 edition, which has the three prefaces. Well, I was looking through this book. I could not find anything similar to what we were reading. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Do take a peek at the what I posted in the chat. Just open it up and see if that would work for thee. Yeah. Let's also, Karen and Conrad, get the other version, the 1872 version, on the OYM website soon if we can, okay? Even though it doesn't have the second and third preface, we should no, have it. that's fine. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to go into this in depth. It was just a frustration. No, that's, not, that's fine. I understand. I don't understand something. Uh, if you make a reprint of something, the reprint can be copyrighted, I gather. Is that correct? Mine looks like the copyright there. Henry, is that Forgotten Books, the one you're using tonight? Or yes, ForgottenBooks.com. That's the book I have at home. I'm just doing the 2007 Inner Light Books online version right now. 
is the one you held up, would that be one that we could follow easily with the one that you have online or is it different in a significant way? When is the, the, the actual book that you have published, the 2000? I'm, I'm looking at that. Uh, copyright 2018. Can you give us the ISBN number or put it in the chat? Yes, but I'm telling you it's out of print. I believe I found it in paperback online. The exact one? I believe that one, yes. I'm using this one and it follows it fine. Thank you, Nancy. Appreciate it very much. I have a copy, but the one I'm using is very hard to follow. <laughs> and I wanted to get one to be a little easier, but thank you both. I think I got it from thriftbooks.com. Thank you, Nancy. Years ago, I wanted to read the Bible like early friends and traditional friends read the Bible with that kind of mindset. And that's important. Some of them could read the original Greek of the New Testament. I'm assuming some could read the Hebrew as well. That gives you a different perspective as well. But early friends, I think, got it right. Anything else? Henry, that passage in John, you are my friend. If you do what I command you is chapter 15, verse 14. I looked it up. Me, Henry, what distinguished the way early friends read the Bible was that they believed what was written there and didn't try to come up with some intellectual way of fitting it to what they would like it to say. There are almost as many different Christianities as there are Christians today. They're vastly on different understandings of so much. Friends were very unified there, all the basic beliefs. I mean, and traditional friends over the generations, too. Well, yeah, I guess what I'm saying is, for instance, when Jesus said, swear not at all, friends said, okay, that's what he meant. I can say that was important in early Christianity so of the modern, 300 years. Modern really, will take a verse and say, well, but it really, that's not really what he meant. What he meant was blah, 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 so we yeah. can keep doing what we want to do. People are always doing what they want to do rather than trying to discern the will of God. We have such a gold mine here, such a precious pearl in the rediscovery of true Christianity among those earliest friends. It's something to really be guarded and kept, but the worldly influence is so powerful in, in pulling people off into other directions. And of course, the same thing happened with early Christianity, too. Okay, I think I should um, stop the recording. This podcast has been a production of Ohio Yearly Meeting. It was hosted by Henry Jason and edited by Kim Palmer. The introduction and credits were read by Chip Thomas. The quote that begins this episode was from William Penn's introduction to George Fox's journal. A link can be found in the description. We welcome feedback on this and any of our podcast episodes. Please email us at OYMConservative at gmail.com.